We are talking about work. We're talking about how wisdom applies from the book of Proverbs to our lives at work, in business, working in the home, financially, all of these considerations we are talking about. And so we, uh, when we talk about wisdom at work, we're talking about something very specific. Wisdom is, to begin with, building habits in our minds, virtues that help us to look ahead in life like the virtue of prudence. It's a habit of looking down the road and seeing what's coming, both the opportunities and the challenges, and making preparation for those. Or discernment, another virtue, another habit of looking around at us and and distinguishing between the good and the bad, good and bad choices, good and bad opportunities, uh, and uh, the good and bad in advice that we receive. So wisdom for work is partly uh, beginning by saying we need new habits. We need to build work habits in the mind first so that we have those virtues of prudence and uh, discernment. Uh, and those will help us work effectively. So that's part of what we're saying about wisdom at work. Another thing we're saying is that every one of us has a role. Wisdom takes that virtue of prudence or discernment and says, okay, in this situation, you're not the boss, you're the employee. In this situation, you're not the teacher, you're the student. In this situation, you are the boss not the employee. You have a role here, and what you owe to the people around you, your employees, your customers, clients, the people you serve, what you owe depends on what your role is in that situation. And so wisdom works through the virtues in our minds, the habits of looking out at the world around us and understanding it, Wisdom moves to define our role in a situation, and it says, here's what you owe based on that role. Last week, we dealt with a question of motivation. What drives us to work? Why do we work? And we saw last time, we're in a fallen world, and our appetites drive us to work. Work is a necessity. We work so that we can eat. In our country, we are unbelievably wealthy in relation to the rest of the world. And so that means that very often we think of work as meeting cravings, not meeting needs. And so when the fallen world is doing its fallen things and we are denied our cravings, we find ourselves so often in the position of resenting uh, the, the loss of our work, the loss of our rights, the loss of our entitlements, and we lose motivation and drive to work. And what the scriptures are saying is, you need discernment. You need to rebuild that habit in your mind so that you can see the fallenness of this world and the real reason to work. It's because this world is fallen deep into sin. And work is the thing that God has given us to do in this context 
to work through that, clear the field of the weeds, repair the wall that is broken down, and so forth. So discern what kind of world we're living in. Then we also need to know our role in this world. Our role is to be those redeeming workers in this world who are showing people the grace of God through the excellence of the work that we do. So this kind of thinking is very different from um, the way we think about work or the way, uh, you know, something in a motivational seminar might tell you about how to stay motivated for work. Work is about who God is, who we are, and the power of his redeeming gospel in this world. So we're going to continue this discussion of motivation this morning in a little bit of a different way. We're tired. Are you tired? School just started this week. And so we're looking ahead to the fall. I just, I got through the announcements. I was already tired. Uh, Because just looking ahead at all of the things that are starting, everything that is happening, and we look at um, the start of a new season where we're leaving the summertime and we're headed into the fall, and it just makes us tired. We've got a lot to do. We've got jobs. We've got tools to get to work with, but we may not have the heart to do it. We may look at everything ahead of us to do and say, I just, I just don't want to. It's too hard. I can't do this again. Seems like the last several years has just been that elaborate game of fetch that we talked about last week from the cartoon. You you go get the stick, you bring it back, they throw the stick again, you go get it again, and it's just a very sophisticated version of that. I'm tired of it. I look at what's happening in this world, I look at what's happening in the economy, in politics, in the condition of business and the climate of business, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I feel used up. I feel abused. All of these things are just continually coming at me, and here we go again. We're just getting ready to gear up and do it again, get busy again. Why? I don't have the heart to do it. Well, we're going to look at some of these questions this morning, and I'm sorry to say that this is going to be a very insensitive sermon. This will not be PC. Uh, (laughs) So you've already heard, I mean, Dave did a a magnificent job of reading these Proverbs to us, and you, you already got a sense of what the tone of these things are going to be. This is not compromising. It is not kind. There's mockery here. And so we're going to look at this, and then we're going, to, we're going to dive a little bit deeper down into it, past the excuses of what Proverbs calls the sluggard, our main character for the last couple of weeks. We're going to look past those excuses, and we're going to go to the deep pride that lies underneath it, that is exposed in this scripture. The reason we're doing it is because we want to see our hearts opened up before the Lord so that in our self-regard and pride, we change and we get back to the redeeming work that God has called us to do.
So let's dive in this morning, <clears throat> looking first at the excuses of the sluggard. The, these are in verses 13 through 15 of Proverbs 26. There are three descriptions here, all of them comical. It was great to hear how Dave read them and how you reacted to them. They're funny. This is mockery. The sluggard says, verse 13, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Um, So, uh, we've commented on this a lot in uh, this brief series on work, that Solomon, which is to say the Spirit of God, is not particularly kind toward sluggards. They are the object of mockery. And uh, this is a classic example. There are excuses not to work buried in here, and this is part of what uh, what Solomon is doing. Um, you kind of have to picture Solomon sitting on the throne, watching business come and go out of the throne room, meeting after meeting, making these comments. Certain guy comes in, hasn't done his work, he's kind of rubbing his eyes, and he he makes his apologies and leaves. And Solomon perhaps says, the door turns on its hinges, and so does the sluggard on his bed. I mean, this is the kind of thing, this is the king dealing with all the stuff. And out of him <clears throat> comes words from the Spirit of God, which were arranged in this order, not just as reactions to specific situations, but as wisdom for all of life. So, three excuses not to work. Fear. There's a lion in the streets. There's danger out there. I can't go out today. If I go out today, I'll get eaten by that lion that's prowling around out there. Um, the smarter you are, the more sophisticated fear gets. Maybe it's not a lion in the streets. Maybe it's inflation is coming. We all know it. Interest rates are too low. We're printing money. Inflation is out there. It's roaring in the streets. And we're just waiting, and it's going to eat up everything I do. Why work? We're going to see, you know, 25% hyperinflation here like they do in Argentina. There's a lion in the streets. That's a very sophisticated version of there's danger out there. Why put out all the effort? Why not just pull in your horns and not worry about this? I'm not taking a position on the Fed or interest rates or printing money. Just saying, fear is an excuse not to work. Sometimes the fears are more personal. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you know you're fighting for survival at your business and you're afraid and you don't want to go. 
Because you don't know what you're going to face today. You don't know what unexpected thing could tip you over the edge today and send your whole business off the rails. And so you're afraid, and so there's this hindrance to go out and face it. I want to take a different approach with these excuses uh, not to work. It would, it would be fine, I suppose, just to uh, take the lead from Solomon and just kind of continue to make fun of them. But let's try this. Let's suppose all the excuses are legitimate. Let's suppose there really is a line in the streets. Let's just suppose, just for the sake of argument, that hyperinflation is on its way. And everything you earn today is going to be consumed by the low value of our currency and rising prices. Let's just assume it's all true. Have you ever worked, labored under that level of certain doom? You ever done that? Soldiers have. Leaders of businesses do. The larger the profits, the harder the fall. The more employees, the bigger the catastrophe if you have to do downsizing, let people go. Um, there was a period in my ministry a couple of years ago where I was, I was living under this kind of thing. It was in another church, and there was um, trouble in a marriage. And in the space of a few days, I watched trouble in one marriage that looked like a long-running sort of counseling issue that was very grievous and we would do a lot of praying and, and counseling over, but nevertheless it was an isolated thing. It morphed. It became a split in a marriage that affected almost every single core family in the church in one way or another. And you had people choosing up sides and it affected missionaries in other countries and missionaries who had returned home so that the reach of this one marital problem all of a sudden became stress fractures that started to spread throughout the whole structure of the ministry. And so in the space of a few days, I watched this thing blow into something that was like a nightmare scenario. I remember having nightmares. In the middle of this thing, uh, after a day of endless meetings, lengthy discussions, trying to determine who's lying here. Someone is. Someone is not telling the truth. Who is it? And, th- and then, once you figure that out, how do you put all of this back in a kind of contained space so that it doesn't threaten the existence of a church? So, in the space of one week, you go from a unified church to what looks like the thing could blow sky high. I, after uh, some of these days, I'd go home, go to sleep, and uh, have literal nightmares. One of them, I, 
almost never remember my dreams. I remember this one. I was seeing tornadoes. Kind of, you know those HD dreams where it's all just, ugh, it's just crystal clear and, and a Dolby surround sound and the whole thing. I was seeing tornadoes pop up all over the place. And I couldn't get away from them. Um, and so it was one of those things where you, you wake up and um, you can't go back to sleep, all of those kinds of things. So in, in this small way, I can tell you, I have labored under fear, gut-wrenching fear, that this was going to get out of control and it was going to ruin everything for lots and lots of people and that I was going to be at the center of it, getting my hands dirty, trying to contain it. Um, you, those of you who have been in that kind of place, and lots of you have, you know that you wake up and you are hit with that sense of, do I have to go to work today? Because I really don't want to. I don't want to face this. Here's what I learned. One, The fear is very real. The worry and anxiety behind it and the ultimate outcomes are not. Feels real. You're running the scenarios. Worst case scenario, this could happen. But somehow it doesn't happen. And how does it not happen? It's very simple. You wake up in your fear You go to work. You prioritize. You make decisions. You pray. You put the sweat into the situation. And in that desperation, you see God work. If your response is the opposite, if my response in that kind of fear is the opposite of that, I'm just going to lay here I'm sleeping in today. I don't want to go. I don't want to face this. I can't have another meeting like this. That's your response. And you're praying on your bed that God will do something about your situation. I can tell you There are 10 other people who awaken in the same fears. They go to work in those fears. They will see God work in their sweat and their toil and you won't. As your pastor, I'm warning you against sluggardly behavior based on fear. We all want God to do for us. But the reality is we need to face the things that frighten us, get to work in faith, prioritize, make decisions, sweat, and watch Him intervene. Our work is never enough. It will never provide everything that we need. 
but those who work see God work. And I can tell you, that situation, just because we kept going back, not just me, but lots of us, kept going back and back and back, working, 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 patiently, one day at a time, one meeting at a time, we saw God do a miracle. That couple is back together again. How does it happen? It happens through work. But the sluggard says, I'm afraid. There's a lion in the road. Second excuse. As the door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. Back and forth, back and forth. One side, the other side. I'm tired, sleepy. Just a little more sleep. Just a little more. Just one more hour. And that's it. Um, physical tiredness. Again, it's, it's easy to, to make fun of you know, somebody who's sleeping until 11.30 and you know, just kind of blowing off their responsibilities. But, but let's take this different approach with this. Let's assume that this person actually didn't get the sleep they needed. Let's assume that this person really does need more sleep. Have you ever worked without sleep? It is hard. It's difficult. It's draining. It's bad for you. (laughs) Bottom line, we weren't meant to go without sleep. But there were times in this period that I just told you about there were times where because of nightmares and, and different things and just uh, your brain just going 90 miles an hour, unable to shut it down, I, on Saturday nights, I would be trying to go to sleep, trying to go to sleep. I've got to preach in the morning. I've got two services. I, I have to get some sleep. And then you start worrying about sleeping. That's a bad place to be. So, you know, you eventually you doze off about 2 in the morning, then you're up at 5 after fitful, no good, bad sleep. Well, maybe I just call in and say, you know, I just can't do it today. I, I just can't preach today. God shut the door today on me preaching. I'm just going to listen to the Holy Spirit. I need more sleep. It's bad for me to preach today because... Uh, And if it's bad for me, it would be bad for you. So let's just follow God's lead on this, and I'm going to sleep in. That doesn't work, does it? No, you've got to get out of bed, and you've got to go and do your job, whether you feel like you got enough sleep or not. Here's the interesting thing that I've found going through these periods where I, I was not getting enough sleep, I have found that the Lord preaches the sermon, and I don't. I get up there, I do what I need to do, I set my goals, I work it, I get that done, and then I find that the Lord was in all of that, and that even... 
if, if there was a more subdued tone that morning because I was not as energetic as I would like to be, even that the Lord uses somehow to get his truth into someone's heart. It's the same in every single kind of work. If we are tired, physically tired, even if that is true, and we do need more sleep, it is not a reason to slack off on the work. It is a reason to reprioritize, make different decisions. I've, I learned all kinds of things about myself um, during that period because I knew I needed to change some things if I was going to get any sleep. And so I did. I changed work patterns, changed what I was doing. I'm a night owl, so I'm always up late at night. And so I changed some things that I did, changed some things in my schedule so that I would be ready to sleep when the time came to sleep. And it made a difference. And I felt better and, and all of those kinds of things. And all of that has stood me in good stead uh, for later times when there's fear and there's crisis and y- your sleep is threatened. In other words... Even if it's true, it's not an excuse. I said this was going to be insensitive. Because a lot of times, what, we are, what burdens us, chronic pain, sleeplessness, a disease, uh, whatever it may be, those things are real challenges. But it doesn't change the fact that the weeds are growing The wall is crumbling and the field is going to be overgrown if we don't do the work one day at a time, one task at a time. So, uh, next and and final excuse here. I love this one. It's so uh, pictorial. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. He's actually got the food. It's cooked. It's sitting there right in front of him. And it's just... (laughs) What is this? How can you be so helpless that it wears you out to get your hand back to your mouth? What is this? This is the excuse of inertia just too hard. I can't get this stone rolling. It's too heavy. When I'm pushing against it with all my might and it's just it, nothing's working, it's just nothing's moving, I can't make the changes I need to make. Inertia is against me, so why bother? I try changing my habits, I try getting more effective, I try changing my parenting if it's a parenting issue, I try changing my devotional life if it's a spiritual issue. I try this, I try that, nothing makes any difference. Inertia is a very hard thing to beat. Let me make a comment about churches and work here because uh, a lot of us... Um, maybe wrestling with um, motivation in our business lives, but I think all of us are struggling right now with motivation in ministry life. And 
the, the, the struggle of a church is, is all of this worth anything? Because the inertia is so hard to beat. It is so hard to get that stone rolling to feel like we're accomplishing anything. And um, what I have found is that um, inertia can only be beat by one thing. It's one task at a time, one day at a time. And you have to accept very, very small and slow results at the beginning of getting that stone rolling so that later on, It'll go faster, and the momentum is working for you, not against you. We are at this place where, as a church, we have decided we are going to do some incremental things to get some things started in children and family education. We're going to do some things differently. And so we're at that stage where the inertia is against us because we haven't done this before. And you're, you're making the stone roll for the very first time. And so what I have found, again, let's take the same approach here. Let's assume that this, this, this reason is legitimate. The inertia really is that bad. It is that hard to get something done. Well, then what do you do? Um, for a while, I was a pastor in a, in a dairy community and there are a lot of Dutch families that do the dairy business. And if you, if you want sayings, the Dutch have a saying for everything. And it can be a little bit frustrating. One time, one of these guys is an old dairyman, and we were working on something, and he looks up and smiles and says, If you keep it clean, it's easier to keep it clean. Thank you for that. Uh, the, the trouble is, it's true, isn't it? If you let the car go so that you've got dirt clods hanging off of the wheel wells, and, and it's, uh, well, I shouldn't go into that because then we're going to go into the parking lot and judge each other. But, but I'm just saying, if you do the incremental work of keeping it clean, it's easier to keep it clean. Another saying this guy had was, I can move Disneyland tomorrow. Just start at one end and go to the other. Yeah, you, you, you probably could. What's he saying, though? It's true. You got a massive task. How are you going to do it? Start at one end and keep going all the way to the end. Here's a rule that I have. When I start a task... I finish that task in the time that I have allotted for it. You know what, what's back behind that? An evaluation of the time that I have and the task that I need to do, all of the tasks. So if you were to look at my schedule um, and, and the way it, it works out, it's actually a, a very rigid and inflexible routine. I go to a certain place at a certain time for a certain period and I do certain tasks there. Why? Because I know I can get those tasks done 
and I'm not going to leave them unfinished so that I have to pick up where I left off at some other point. Why? Inertia. If it's done, it's done. Close the book on it and move on. I like that. So I pick tasks and windows of time. I put tasks in windows of time depending what I can get done in that time. If it's 20 minutes, I will pick something that I can get done in 20 minutes and be done and close the book on it. Maybe it's an email. Maybe it's reading an article that someone wants me to read. Whatever it may be. It's 20 minutes. I can fit something in there. And I can finish it. You know what I find? That when you work that way, when you finish tasks then you get that momentum going and you don't find yourself constantly having to go back and say, what was, I, what was I doing there now? What was this about? I made all these notes, but I have no idea what they're about. That's a terrible place to be. Right? Um, now, here's where it gets harder, where you've got a big task and a longer period of time where you need to work that task all the way to the end. And at a certain point in the middle of that work session, Facebook is calling. (laughs) Facebook wants your attention. You're getting notifications. And the email is there. And this guy is just lighting up. And, And so what do I do? I ignore it. I'm not ignoring you. I'm not saying you're unimportant. I'm saying this is a task. And I'm going to finish this task. And then I will work on these other things. Inertia is a problem of not finishing what we start. Inertia is a very real problem, but it is no excuse. So we've looked at these excuses. Now I want to step back. And I want you to look with me at the bookends of this little passage. It's very obvious that all of these verses go together. I want you to look at verse 12. I just got a text here, but I'm going to ignore it because I'm going to finish the task that I... (laughs) I'd like you to look with me at verse 12. Here's the way those three verses about the sluggard's mindset, emotions, and excuses are introduced. This is one of the bookends. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Ooh. Okay, so the fool. You can beat a fool with rods and it still won't get through to him. That's how bad it is with a fool. You can teach a fool, but the fool won't listen. You can the fool. Uh, we we saw it in um, maybe verse nine. The fool knows proverbs, but they're like those proverbs. The very word of God, good true things, are like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard. He doesn't have any idea how to use them. That's a fool. This is saying, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for that fool than for him. This is a bad situation. It's not a good place to be. 
And so we get this verse, and we, the impact of it hits us, and we wonder, Solomon, what kind of person are you thinking about? What kind of person is wise in his own eyes? He gives you three examples. The sluggard says there's a lion in the road. The sluggard turns on his bed like a door on hinges. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears it out, wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. What is he saying? Here's a guy who's wise in his own eyes. He insists that he knows better about the dangers in the streets than anybody else. His excuses make the most sense to him. Her excuses are inviolable axioms. You cannot get through to her that her excuses don't matter. Slugger's wise in his own eyes. And this is what Solomon is saying here. The sluggard in repeating all of the reasons why he can't work or why she can't work, in repeating all of those reasons, the sluggard is saying, I've got this wired. I don't need anybody to tell me what I need. I don't need anybody to give me directions. I already know the reality of the situation. It's too dangerous. I don't have the resources I need to get the job done. And the job's too big. There's too much inertia. I'm smart enough to see that. That's the sluggard. Now, what Solomon has done here is he said, there's a person who has too high a view of himself. He's wise in his own eyes. That means you can't get through to him. Look at the way this ends. So, verse 12 says, you see a man who's wise in his own eyes. There's more hope for a fool than for him. Three examples of how a sluggard is wise in his own eyes than verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. If you keep it clean... It's easier to keep it clean. Tah, what are you talking about? That's crazy talk. That's stupid. Why do, you, why do you keep repeating all of these little sayings to me, old man? Well, that old man can answer pretty sensibly. Line up seven of them. The sluggard will hear everything that those seven have to say. Throw in a few hard-working old women who've been there and done that. Line them up. See what they say about the job at, ahead, about the dangers, about the fears. Line them up. See what they say about inertia and working against the odds every single day, being tired and not having enough. Line them up. See what they say. The sluggard will come away saying, I'm smarter than that. I don't have to go through what you went through. I'm just going back to bed. What is Solomon saying here? This is back to our initial question. How do you stay motivated to work? How do you push through being tired? 
Solomon is saying this in this little package of verses. He's saying self-regard is the ultimate demotivator. Our view of ourselves, our high view of our own skills and knowledge is the ultimate thing that drains our motivation to work. Powerful. Because when I look at this, and I, I really wrestled over this, I, could, I knew I needed to preach on this passage because it was funny. But when I, the more I looked at it, the weirder it got. Because I looked at those bookends and tried to, Solomon, why are you putting it this way? And then it hit me that every advance I'd ever made in my work, whether it was music or school or ministry, whatever it was, writing, It all came from one thing. The realization that I did not yet have all the knowledge I needed, all the skills I needed. I didn't have what it took. And I needed to get it. And the only way I was going to get it was through work. And when that hit me, all of this kind of fell into place. Self-regard is the ultimate demotivator. So... Let's do some evaluation. This takes us, if we're talking about pride and self-regard in relation to work and sloth, this takes us directly to the gospel, doesn't it? This is saying the reason we're having trouble at work could be because our hearts are hard and our hearts need to soften. So here are a couple of questions uh, based on all of this uh, to... uh, Expose some of that first. Where do you find yourself lacking motivation? What is that zone where you're saying, I just, I just don't want to do it. I can't do it. I don't want to put in the time. I'm sick of putting in the effort. What is that zone? For some of you, you, you would rather dig ditches for 12 hours then talk to your teenager. Because it's easier. So what is that spot where you're saying, or your spouse, tried it, said it, prayed it, I'm done, why bother? I'd rather go to work then talk to my spouse. Where is that? Because it's the same work ethic. doesn't matter what the issue is. It's that same ability to say, I need to make the decision. I need to have the prudence and the discernment to make this call. And when I make the decision, I'm the one who needs to implement it. Or... I'm the one who needs to build the partnership so we can implement it. This is me. And I don't have enough, but God has enough. So if I trust him, he will show me how this gets done. He will supply. He will provide. He will protect. He will give me the energy in the moment moment to get the work done. But this is my thing. And I am going to do it. You realize what I'm saying to you is... uh, Do I really want to say this? 
don't say it. Let go and let God is very poor advice. If it means he will do for you what he has called you to do. He won't. He will not do for us what he has called us to do. Learn the scriptures. He's not going to zap us with it. What do we have to do? Put in the time. Reach Chico, Paradise, Orland, this region for the kingdom of God. Well, God will do it. Sorry, he called us to do it. In his power. Those are two very different things. I'm not saying that we should uh, replace faith with the work ethic. I'm saying the only way we can learn faith is through the work ethic. That's the only way. Those who work see the massive gap between what we are able to do and what we need to do. We see God work. And you are seeing God work as a church because you're taking this approach. So, it doesn't matter what the issue is. It may not be your job. It may be your family. It may be your devotional life. Where is it that you're saying, I'm done, tired, put in enough? What is that zone? Then second question, how should you ask God to change your heart in relation to the people around you? In other words, every bit of neglect and sloth in our life where there's a responsibility, you've got a job to do, you've got some tools to do it, but you don't have the heart to do it. Every time there is an attitude that values me over others. Every time. And what we need is stop thinking about my issues, my triggers, my needs, and and all of this inward focus, we need to go to God and say, the people in my life are valuable. And they are in need. And it is my job to serve. I have a role And I need the prudence to look ahead and see what to do with that role. I I owe things to these people because of who I am in their life. God help me change my heart toward the people around me. So if I see their value, then I will have the motivation to work. If they are not valuable... Why would I work? If they're not good enough to serve, then why would I give the service? You see, this is the attitude behind sloth that uh, Solomon is teaching here. And this is where the gospel needs to come into our hearts and say, yes, you are valuable. Yes, you are tired. You have limitations. You have fears. You have all of these things. 
But even where all of those things are true, you need to step out, trust me, and I will back you up. I will provide for you. I will enable you and empower you to give what you owe to the people around you. Because I not only care about you, God says, I care about them too. And you are part of this solution. So this issue of work, as I come down to every week, takes us right back to the gospel and who God is and who he has called us to be as servants of his will. We do have some questions. If you need to go, this is a good moment to slip out. Uh, We understand that. Um, So um, nevertheless, hope you'll be able to stay for this. Thank you. Good. Okay. First question. Um, oh, another non-Dutch inertia saying. You can eat the elephant. Just start at the toe and take one bite at a time. Don't look at the whole elephant or you'll get overwhelmed. That's a good thought. It's infuriating, but it's true. Uh, You can only eat one bite at a time. So there's that much of it. Um, Another question. When you use the term heart, what do you mean? Wish I knew. Um, Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to determine where to start on this issue. Because we tend to think that heart is just emotions. We've got lots of heart. So heart might equal passion or what you feel. Um, In the scriptures, the heart is the seat of your intellect, your identity, your sense of self, and it's, it's Grand Central Station for all your relationships and the things that you do. So it's much bigger than the emotions. So when, when we're saying our hearts are hard, we're saying all of that, our minds and our, our thinking, our sense of self, our identity, our relationships and the things that we do, they're all seized up. They're, they're frozen in place, and they can't move. When we say we want our hearts to soften, we're saying we want the influence of the Holy Spirit to come into our minds, open our minds to some more reality about who He is. Uh, help us to understand the relationships that we're in, the way we're thinking about them, the actions that we're taking. Help us with all of these things so that what is frozen up can get moving again and come alive again. So the heart is grand central station for everything about who you are and what you do in life. It all comes through that seat of your mind and your intellect. Uh, One writer, Jacques Barzin, had a habit of hyphenating mind and heart as if it was one concept. I like that. I would encourage you to think that way. That's very biblical uh, to think about it that way. Okay, a couple, couple other questions here. 
um, I had a severe life-threatening depression. Can say God moved when I moved, literally, not when I was unable to do anything or couldn't leave my bed, one foot in front of the other. Pray, God shows Himself. He moves. Uh, so, uh, good testimony there. That is how this works. It's one foot in front of the other. How do you prepare yourself wisely for sleeping so that your mind slows down enough so that your body can fall asleep? Great question. Um, First, I try to think of sleep not as sleeping for myself. I'm sleeping for tomorrow, for the people tomorrow. So that kind of helps me take that worrying about sleeping out of it. And I can just go to sleep because I've got a job to do. I have a role. Now it is to sleep. Uh, second thing that I do is um, I do not give work to myself between 10 and 11 that requires me to create something. So I don't do writing or, uh, you know, any uh, sermon prep or any of those kinds of things because I'm taking stuff and creating with it. It's a very active process. If, if I am creating at 11.30 at night, then how am I going to shut it off? Well, I've found I can't, so I don't do that kind of thing there. I give myself other tasks up to about 12 at night where I'm revising a little bit more passive, taking in something, shaping, um, but not actively creating. Another thing that I do is I've started watching what I eat late at night, or I I don't eat late at night, um, put it that way. I I start watching what I eat in the evenings uh, so that I'm not eating stuff that's going to keep me awake. we, We can eat in very poor ways, and we can eat ourselves into insomnia. Um, another thing I do is I take these screens and I turn them way, way down. Lower the lights in the room. And um, I mean, when, especially now, when we're looking at these screens, they are, they are like burning our eyes up because they're so powerful. So... Um, you just turn them way down. It requires uh, there's less intensity coming at you. The eyes can can shut down a little bit. So those are some of the things that I do. Um, probably more than you wanted to know. But the, who creates the prezies? Um, and thank you for for doing it. This says I do uh, on Saturday afternoons. Um, I take a sermon outline that I wrote two months ago um, and then I take it out, review it and load it onto a Prezi and try to design it so it's comprehensible and smooth and all of that stuff. Why do I write the sermons two months in advance? Don't I want to leave room for the Holy Spirit? Isn't that too much preparation? Forget it. The Holy Spirit is in all of that preparation two months ago, and he's in the preparation Saturday afternoon. I do it way in advance, and I do sermon series in batches for this reason. We always run out of time at the end of the week. 
If I am not ahead in sermon prep, you know what gets shorted? Sermon prep. Which means you come here and it's just not as valuable as it otherwise might have been or it may not be valuable at all. So we don't do Saturday night specials. So I, um, and I don't steal other people's, or borrow other people's material. Um, it's, it's my stuff. Uh, that's not a point of pride. It's just craftsmanship. Um, that's what it's about. Uh, so I, I do the prezies, and I think they're very important. Um, so I, I have learned how to do those relatively quickly, but I do put a fair amount of time into that. Uh, thank you for asking. Um, that's wonderful. Um, Luke 10, 41, 42. Perfect guide for a busy life. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken from you. This is so true. When I am prayerful, it's amazing how the day goes. Because unexpected things happen, crises erupt, um, this task has to get switched out for this other task, and you know what? The time all works out to the minute. Pretty interesting. Prayer is a very useful thing. Um, What are some steps to take to minister to unbelievers who are wise in their own eyes? Parentheses, family. <laughs> That's a very long sermon. Um, very good question. Um, how do you get through to a society that is deeply wise in its own eyes? I think this is really very simple. Um, don't talk to people who are wise in their own eyes. Leave them alone. God will deal with them. Um, Spend your time on the people who are wise in their own eyes, but they're starting to have some doubts. I love doubters. Most of what I do is designed to produce doubt and to put cracks in self-confidence. If you have people in your life who are starting to doubt things, move in. Start to talk to them. Show them how to be a faithful doubter who can say, maybe I don't have all this wired. Maybe I need somebody to show me more and open up my mind. Um, Oh, my goodness. I can't even pronounce that. Is that Dutch? (laughs) Okay, do you have a translation? The last weights weigh the most. That's good. Is that Dutch? Well done. Well done. Uh, So that is true of sermons as well as uh, cinder blocks. So we'd better call it a day. Uh, Thank you. Excellent questions. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we go acknowledging that you are king. We desire to live out your grace and goodness. And so we call upon your name, fill us as we go with power, grace, and peace. Go with us and show your glory 
to the nations. We pray it in your name and all God's people said. Amen.